Well, once again, good morning. Welcome to Vertical Life Church. It's awesome that you guys came today. I always say this whenever we have bad weather, that the A-team shows up on Sunday, even in the bad weather. So you're the A-team. You're part of the in-crowd. Thank you for being here. Uh, we are in week two of our series, The Great Romance. And for those of you that may have missed last week, really we're beginning a journey through the Bible and just to really discover that the Bible itself is the greatest romance story ever written. And we don't often think about it this way, but it truly is the greatest romance story ever written. It's about a father uh, cultivating a bride for his son as he creates life, as he, uh, through Jesus, breathes life into the world. God is preparing a people for his son to be an eternal companion. And in the setup video, there are verses from the book of Song of Solomon that really bring to light this, this intimate bond and this passionate connection that Jesus has with this entity we call the church. It's every believer of all time who's ever called on the name of Jesus, who's been filled with the Spirit, has been united into this eternal relationship with their Heavenly Father. And it's through Jesus that we have eternal life. And we become part of the church. We also become part of the bride of Christ, the bride of the Son. And it is a connection, an intimacy with God that can never be severed. Paul says in Romans that neither height nor depth nor principality or the powers to come can ever separate us from the love of God. Jesus, the, the Son of God, the very uh, revelation of God himself is passionately pursuing and contending for the heart of his bride. And we see this all throughout the Bible. It is a passionate romantic love story this year the focus for our church really as we as we can kind of look at you know different struggles we have in our lives personally struggles we have maybe as a church corporately we can really boil down to a lot of those things as really not a faith issue but a love issue and so on my heart this year the holy spirit has kind of laid on my heart that the focus of our church this year is to fall in love with jesus once again and you might be here and you might say, you know what, I, I love Jesus. I love God. And I would agree that that's probably true. You probably love God. If you've grown up in, in church, you've made a commitment to Christ, you, you believe that he is the son of God, your sins have been forgiven, you have a relationship with Jesus, you probably do love Jesus. But just like any married couple on this earth, you might love your spouse but over time, if that love is not kept kindling, that passion can begin to die out. So love might be there, but the passion goes missing. And when passion evaporates, lack of interest can ensue. Motivation begins to wane. We begin to take one another for granted, and we end up missing the very vital and necessary need in the very depth of our souls. And that is to be passionately pursued by our spouse. And the same is true with our relationship with God. We are never more alive spiritually than we are when we are passionately in pursuit of the heart of God, when we are pursuing Him with all that we are, when we are zealous to honor and encounter Him more and more with every aspect of our lives. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says to the church of Rome that we should present God, our bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, that our whole being should be offered to God as a sacrifice because of what he's done in our lives. And in verse 2 he says, and to do that we need to constantly be transforming our minds, renewing our minds day in and day out as we seek to know him, to honor him, and what it is to be a Christian. Jesus, during his time here on earth, said that we should seek the kingdom of God above all else and his righteousness. That there's this, this emphasis on a passionate pursuit of the people of God for his heart. This means the reality of his presence in our lives, his commission, his command, should so overwhelm and overtake us that it dominates every aspect of our lives. When we wake up, when we go to work, when we clock out of work. This passion and zeal will drive us to encounter God in ways we never thought possible, to encounter his presence, to be filled with his love and the peace of God that passes all understanding. It is an 
earth-shattering, life-altering, life-changing love that God has for his people. It's a love that casts out all fear. It is a love that quiets anxious minds and hearts. It is a love that fuels a confident heart in who you are and who you were created to be. It increases a powerful faith, and it propels us into the glorious destiny that God has created for us since before the foundation of the earth. God's love is redefining. And so we're journeying through the Bible to rediscover who Jesus is. He is God divine, and he is the lover of our souls. And the more we discover who he is, I believe the more our hearts will want to get to know this God of ours in a personal, in a deep, intimate way, to pursue him daily. You know, I, I was thinking about this uh, when I was younger, and I was single, and didn't have a prospect. Uh, I didn't really date much in high school at all, so I really know what it's like to be single and, and, and not be uh, connected into a relationship when I was younger. And uh, I, I'd always be kind of jealous of my friends who seemed like every other weekend had a new boyfriend or girlfriend that they were taking out. But uh, when, I was, when I was younger, I knew that as a single person, it's, it's easy to go to class or maybe go to work and see all these people from the opposite sex that, that, that you know, you pass by each and every day. And it's easy just to let them be invisible in your life, especially if you're not pursuing them, you're not interested in them. You know, you could go to school, you could be sitting right next to somebody and not even think for a second, have not a single romantic interest uh, towards them whatsoever. And, and so there are many people that we could pass this way. And when I was a freshman in high school, I was beginning to really cultivate a group of friends. And there's this one girl that was hanging out with us that I didn't really pay much attention to. I didn't have really much conversation with. She hung out with people that we hung out with, but I, for all intents and purposes, didn't even really know her. And uh, one day, one of her friends came up to me and asked me if I would be interested in going to a dance with her. And it, it would have never crossed my mind. I wasn't, like, interested in her. I didn't have any connection. It would have never even crossed my mind to ask her out. And unfortunately, my parents, they uh, tried to protect me from a lot of different influences, and so they wouldn't let us go to dances in high school. We didn't, we didn't get that opportunity. I think the only dance I ever went to was prom because that, at that point I you know, was old enough to do whatever I wanted. My parents couldn't stop me, so um, I went to prom with a friend. But... Uh, when she asked me, I had to tell her no. But the interesting thing was, is after she asked me, I began to notice her in a way I didn't notice her before. I began to think, well, maybe do I like her? She seems to like me. Maybe I like her in return. You know, maybe I, I might consider, you know, asking her out or something at some point. And I began to just, like, go through these, these thought processes. Unfortunately, the she... Um, died in a car accident not long after that, so uh, nothing was able to really be cultivated or um, have opportunity. But this is kind of what happens whenever we discover that somebody is interested in us. It makes us take a second and really think about them in return, at least as a perspective, you know, could this be somebody that God is bringing into my life? Could this be a potential romantic interest? And, and so this is kind of the approach we're taking in this series. We're getting to know the one who has pursued us, who has taken the first step to say, I am interested in you. I want a relationship with you. He's opened it up for us to enter into a relationship. And it's my belief that as we get to know who Jesus is, we get to know what he's like, that we are going to fall madly in love with him. And the more we love him, the more it's going to begin to change our very lives. Last week, we discovered that this Jesus, he is not just the lover of our souls, but he is also our glorious creator. That God, the Father, created everything in the world through him. He breathed into life all of existence and even now holds it together by the power of his command. He made it possible for us also to be recreated. Because sin entered into the world and we fell from uh, the grace, we fell from that relationship, our relationship with God was severed. Jesus, by giving his life, paid the penalty for our sin and through the Holy Spirit and through his resurrection, we now have the opportunity to become a new creation. That's what's called being born again. We become altogether new. And so today, 
we're going to see a new aspect, another aspect of Jesus. He is our glorious, most holy, and compassionate king. He is our glorious, most holy, and compassionate king. We'll be in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, 2, and 3. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. The verses will also be on the screen, as well as if you have the Version Bible app, you should be able to navigate to the message notes today. But in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the account of creation, as God creates everything. And in this account, we see, we see the Father, through the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit, create all of life. And on day 6, he carves out his crowning achievement of all creation. He carves out from the ground, the dust of the ground, humankind. He breathes human life into existence. We're going to begin reading in verse 26 of chapter 1. And this is what the Word of God says. It says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals and the birds in the sky and all the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. Verse 31, Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening and morning passed in marking the sixth day. In Genesis chapter 2, it begins to expound on this day. After God created, he gave us charge over all of uh, creation, all of the known world. In verse 8 of chapter 2, it says, Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man that he made. Verses 15 through 17 says, The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So God creates. He creates man and woman. He places them in a garden that he prepared for them. And all he does is blesses them with infinite blessing. All the animals, all the fruit, all the trees, every good thing they could possibly want. And yet he warns them there is a tree that you should not touch. If you touch it, if you eat it, then you will surely die. It's going to be bad for you. Within these first verses of the history of the world, God does not just create, but he actually performs a wedding ceremony. And not just for the man and the wife. He creates Adam and Eve, brings them together. The two that were one were divided and now become one again through intimacy and marriage. But he doesn't just create a wedding ceremony for the man and wife. He also performs a ceremony for the father and now his eternal uh, companion. In the, the Jewish wedding ceremony in ancient times, we, they didn't have weddings like we have today. You know, we, we, we plan, we stress out, and we have all the, the, the dresses, all the flowers, all the frills, the music. You know, we have our favorite songs. We plan the after party and all of these things that go into that. Um, and usually there's an engagement that happens for a period of time prior to. But they didn't do weddings that way. In Israel, uh, Jewish culture, the marriage was complete after three main elements were enacted. One, there was a blessing. Number two, there was a contract. And number three, they had a home, a place to then consummate their relationship. In this account, as we look at the specific details of creation, we see that there was a blessing. In chapter 1, it says God blessed them. He, and he said it was very good. Everything that he had, he blessed them. And he blessed them with gifts, with all of creation was their dwelling, their domain. Number two, there was a contract. He said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you're going to die. There's, there was an agreement that came in. And number three, they had a place to consummate their relationship, the Garden of Eden, a special place that God created for them to dwell. 
in Genesis chapter 3, as the creation story begins to ensue, is now you have not just a wedding between a husband and wife, but you also have an eternal relationship consummated between the father and his children through Christ and his bride. Now the story begins to unfold and things begin to unravel. In Genesis chapter 3, it says, God walked in the cool of the garden of the day. It was something that happened on a regular basis. Jesus would not just enjoy what he created, but it would enjoy his people, his children, the bride of the Lord, as they enjoyed what God had created. It was an, it, a relationship that was eternal and it was meant to continue forever. But in chapter 3, something happens to mess up the serene bliss that we see. Sin enters the picture. And we know the story. It's very common. Satan, in the form of a serpent, deceives the woman. She eats from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and gives it to her husband. And they fall from grace. The serpent convinces Eve that she could become like God without God. And that's the problem many of us face even today. And humankind is still trying to become God without God. And it's creating a lot of the pain and suffering we see in the world. Adam was with her, he ate too, and instantly their fellowship with God was broken. God said, don't do this, it will be bad for you if you do. They do it anyway, and all of life begins to change. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, this is what the word records. It says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. This is after sin. Right before, God would walk in the cool of the breeze. They, they would go out to greet him. They'd, they'd have companionship, fellowship. They loved being with the Lord. There was no fear. There was no shame. But after sin, something changes. Jesus comes out like he normally does, is walking among the trees, and they hide from the Lord. Verse 9, it says, The Lord God called to the man, Where are you? It's not because God didn't know where he was. He knows everything. He knew exactly where they were. Often, when God asks us a question, it's not to learn something. It's to draw our hearts to the truth about something. And so he asks, where are you? In verse 10, Adam replies, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. I heard you coming. I, I saw you coming, and I hid because I was afraid. Something was very wrong in an instant, something changed. The moment they agreed with sin, they ate of this forbidden tree. When they heard Jesus walking in the garden, rather than running to him, they fled from his presence and they were desperately afraid because they were naked. This is something that's so significant that we need to like contemplate. Why was this their response? Why being naked were they running from God? It's because they saw themselves now in a different light. Last week we talked about how God is light and in Christ he emanates light. The glory of God shines in the face of Jesus. That There is all-consuming, marvelous, marvelous light beyond comparison. And when man and woman were created in the image of God, there was no sin and perfection. They were called the image bearers of God, which means the same glory that reflected and emanated from God also emanated from man and woman. They had this clothing of glory. They reflected the glory and majesty of God and all of creation in their being. But now something changed. The glory that covered them before was no longer present. And instead of the light of God emanating from them and reflecting from them into the world, the light of God like a spotlight shone on them and now all the darkness within them was on display for all to see. And they were exposed so much so they tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves to cover their shame from God. But when Jesus, the glorious, most holy king who radiates the light of heaven, comes walking in the garden later that evening, they're not just overcome with shame, they're overcome with fear because they know nothing is beyond his gaze. Nothing can be hidden from the glory of God. See, in that tree of knowledge, there was not just knowledge, but a knowledge that we were never meant to acquire. It's the difference between good and evil. Again, when we were created, we were perfectly good. Jesus even said it so much. After he was finished creating, he said it was very good. It was up to the standard of his glory and perfection. It reflected God's goodness. 
But according to be uh, complete in his goodness, we had to be in his perfection, and we were. It was upon us. It was within us. The glory of God shone upon us, and we could not see any imperfection because there was only light that could be seen. So when Jesus comes walking in the garden to hang out with his bride, with his people, with his eternal companion, it was simply the convergence of goodness and light, man with his God, pure, holy, sacred, something we could not comprehend in our day. Light came together as one, an intimate fellowship and relationship. But when sin entered into the picture, that holiness, that light, that converging intimate fellowship was broken, it was shattered. And again, their sin, their darkness, every flaw, every failure, every way they didn't measure up was exposed for all to see. Pointing now, not the goodness of God and the love of God in their direction, but the justice and the judgment of God because they were guilty and there was no hiding it. They were guilty before his very eyes. And everyone who, throughout the Bible, if you read, and we'll, we'll see some of this throughout our journey together, but everyone who stands before God or sees God, has a revelation of God, they have a very similar response. They don't run to God in joy and in celebration. They cower in fear and in terror. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28, Ezekiel the prophet sees a vision of God. He says, all around him was a glowing halo like a rainbow shining in the clouds on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. And when I saw it, I fell face down on the ground, and I heard someone's voice speaking to me. When Ezekiel the prophet saw God, he had no choice but to fall down in fear for his life. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, when Isaiah the prophet saw the Lord, he said, Woe is me, I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When you see God in his glory, you become all too aware of your depravity. When you see God in his perfection and in his holiness, you become all too aware of how you don't measure up. In Genesis 32, 30, Jacob, he has a wrestling match with an angel. And after the match, he names the place Peniel, which means the face of God. And he says, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. He didn't understand how he could encounter God and not die. Because no one stands in the presence of God and survives. In Judges 13, 21 through 22, Samson, the strong man's Parents receive an angel visitation before his birth, and the angel appeared and let them know they would be having a son. And after the angel left, in verse 21, it says, The angel did not appear again to Manoah and his wife. Manoah finally realized it was the angel of the Lord, and he said to his wife, We will certainly die because we have seen God. When you are a sinner in the presence of a holy God, there is intense fear. Because you know judgment is coming. You're completely exposed. There is no denial. There is no hiding. And there is no excuse. There are not any good enough works that you can do to appease this God, to, to bring yourself up to the level of perfection because everything you do is stained by sin. There are no words that can overturn your guilt. There are no reasons, situations, or excuses. And Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 even tried blame shifting. They tried blaming the other person. Adam tries blaming his wife. God, you gave her to me, so really he's blaming God. He said, you gave her to me, so really it's your fault that I'm in this situation. Curse. Eve says it was the serpent's fault. She, she beguiled me. No excuse. Curse. There's no excuse for a sinner when they stand before a righteous and holy God. No excuse. They still fell under the curse of death and the judgment of God. 1 John 1.5 says this is the message we heard from Jesus and now we declare it to you. God is is light, and there is no darkness in him. Darkness cannot have fellowship with light. God is so pure. He is so holy. He is unlike anything we could describe or even 
grasp. He's so radiant and beautiful beyond description. So intense and powerful is his presence. So completely good that darkness cannot have fellowship with him. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul asks a rhetorical question. He says, can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? Can light and darkness coexist? And the answer is no. The only way to get rid of darkness is to turn on the light. You know, when you go into a dark room, how do you get rid of the dark? You flip on the light switch and darkness vanishes. When God comes into a room, darkness has to flee. This is why sin is expelled from the presence of God. When God's light shines, darkness is removed from his presence. Darkness is now what fills the heart of all who sin. It's the desperate reality of the human condition. Romans 3.23 says, All of us have sinned. We have all fallen short of God's glorious standard. God is so holy, so infinite beyond what we can ascribe to. There's no hope to attain His perfection in our own righteousness. There is none righteousness. The only one who is good is the one who is God. And in ourselves, there is no hope for redemption. There's no striving through our own power and strength that's good enough to match the glory of this God because everything we do is tainted by the curse of sin that we bear. It was a fearful thing for Adam and Eve to become naked because the removal of God's glory was a removal of light and that meant a removal of the blessing that they enjoyed and a disconnection to everything they created were created to enjoy through an eternal relationship with God. What's interesting is that the prophet Ezekiel receives a word from God to be directed to the Pharaoh of Egypt during Israel's King Jehoiachin's reign. And it helps us see maybe a deeper picture of what actually transpired in the Garden of Eden or what was transpiring in the Garden of Eden during this, this scenario. And God, through the prophet Ezekiel, begins to use this Pharaoh, king of Egypt, as a metaphor. He begins to liken Egypt to a beautiful tree that's full of majesty and splendor. In Ezekiel chapter 31, verses 8 and 9, this is what God says through the prophet. He says, No other cedar in the garden of God could rival it. No cypress had branches equal to it. No plain tree had boughs to compare. No tree in the garden of God came close to it in beauty. Because I made this tree so beautiful, it gave it such magnificent foliage. It was the envy of all the other trees of where? What's that word? Of Eden. The garden of God is the garden of Eden. And here, the prophet, God speaking through the prophet, is likening this nation, Egypt, to a tree found in the garden of God. He says, O Egypt, verse 18, to which of the trees of Eden will you compare your strength and glory? You too will be brought down to the depths with all these other nations. You will lie there among the outcasts who have died by the sword. This will be the fate of Pharaoh and all of his hordes. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. Here God is likening the nation of Egypt to the trees of Eden in the garden of God. Now I believe that in the story of Adam and Eve, they actually ate from an actual tree. That this was a real reality. God often uses real-life circumstances to reveal spiritual truths. He'll liken uh, a king, and in, in the Old Testament, the king of Tyre was uh, given a word, but it was really revealing the history and the backstory of how Satan fell from heaven. And so God will often use a physical being, a real story and relationship to actually picture or describe a true spiritual reality. So I do believe Adam and Eve were in an actual garden and they ate from an actual tree. But it's interesting how God is using now the nations to describe trees in the garden. In Deuteronomy 32.8, the Bible says this. It says, when the Most High God assigned lands to the nations... When he divided up the human race, he established the boundaries of peoples according to the number in his heavenly court. So before time, when God created, he also created angels along with the hosts of heaven, along with all of the earth and all the things within the earth. And he divided the world 
according to the number of angels that he had. That's why Paul in Ephesians 6 says there are principalities and rulers in this world. There are spiritual hierarchies on this planet that God set up, and many of those have fallen from grace. And now, rather than glorifying God, they work for the demonic kingdom. But this heavenly court, it's where the angels went to present themselves to the Lord. We see a glimpse of this in the book of Job when the angels go to present themselves before the Lord and again in the book of Kings in the story of Elijah and Ahab. And many scholars believe this heavenly court where they would go to present themselves was a gateway to heaven found in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall of mankind and also the great flood. And that mankind was part of this heavenly court because they were set up as rulers over the entire world. God gave us dominion over the entire planet and everything in it. So man had authority not just over the garden, but the entire planet, which is ultimately what many believe created a jealousy and also a hatred for mankind in the devil. Because he was jealous that he, the most beautiful of all the angels, did not receive the honor of authority over the whole earth. And he that he felt he deserved. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, the, the writer of Hebrews, also quoting from the book of Psalms, says, God made man a little lower than the angels, yet crowned us with glory and honor. This glory was bestowed on lesser beings, and I believe it caused hatred to rise in our enemy's heart. And God, again, in, in the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel, likens the devil to kings of the world and uses their story as a reflection of a spiritual reality and, and what was going on in the heart of the devil as he fell. And you can picture what's happening is here God creates, he separates the kingdoms, he divides it by the angels, and instead of putting Satan, who is the prince angel, over the world and giving him the power and authority over the whole world, he creates these lesser beings, glorifies them, and sets them up as kings. And so it makes sense that these principalities and rulers that fell from glory could be signified as nations in the earth because we also know from the New Testament, the book of Revelation, there's an angel that guards over every church. From Daniel, there are angels that rule over different nations. So here we have the Garden of Eden and the trees within Eden don't just represent trees, but they also represent nations, principalities, powers, and rulers. So I believe this word to Egypt in Ezekiel is not just referring to Egypt himself, but also to the power behind Egypt, spiritual Egypt. The angelic ruler that was leading Egypt into corruption and its rulers into idolatry, into sin. And in this passage, God asks a question to the nation of Egypt. He says, what tree in the Garden of Eden do you compare yourself to? Now he calls it a cypress or he calls it a plain tree, but he asks him, what tree... In the Garden of Eden, do you compare yourself to? And out of all the trees that were there, of all the ones that God created, we're only told about two in the original story. We're told about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and we're also taught about the tree of life. Before sin, we were aware of good because that is all we experienced. But through the tree of knowledge and good and evil, we became aware of evil and death by agreeing with and becoming evil. We became aware of pain and suffering by becoming the cause of pain and suffering in the world. We became aware of sin by opening the door and unleashing sin's curse on all of creation. Through participating in the tree of knowledge and good and evil, we became aware of evil through becoming the source of it in the world. But through the tree of life is where we would have maintained an eternal relationship and connection to God in eternal goodness, joy, bliss, and love to overflow beyond comparison for all creation, for all eternity. The tree of life brings life and eternal life. And if we had participated there, then we would have had Eden for all eternity. These are the two trees that we're told about. In light of the metaphor of Ezekiel 31, since God, through Ezekiel, compares them to earthly and demonic kingdoms, I believe that the tree of knowledge and good and evil and the tree of life really represent two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. We had the choice to dwell forever in the kingdom of God. With our glorious, most holy creator God, the king of all the universe. 
to reflect and image his glory for all eternity, to do as he commanded, to fill the earth and fill it with his glory, to bring the world to life through participating in his kingdom. But through deception, we chose to mutiny against the kingdom of God, against our glorious king and all of his goodness. And we chose to align ourselves with the kingdom of the enemy. Jesus in John 10.10 says Satan exists as a thief to steal, kill, and destroy. There's only one purpose the enemy has, and that is to destroy everything that God created, including us. His intentions are only evil. So we need to think through this situation with this backstory, this knowledge, to see what Adam and Eve were actually doing, the emphasis of what was actually taking place in this moment. They chose to rebel against God against every good thing that God is and had created and had given them, including unfettered access to himself. They gave it up to surrender to and join the enemy of God's kingdom. We left the kingdom of life for the kingdom of death. Now put yourself in God's position. You are a king, an unstoppable king, and your child and your bride attempted a coup with your arch enemy. And they aided them in an attempt to overthrow and destroy you. Not only would that be personally devastating to your heart, but imagine what it would do to your kingdom. Imagine what conflict, confusion, and chaos would ensue. It would throw it into an uproar, a kingdom divided against itself, Jesus said, cannot stand. Now look at the world and look at God's kingdom and what's happened to his kingdom. This holy and righteous God, filled with light, did what only he could do, and he kicked us out of the kingdom. In Genesis 3, 23 through 24, The story says, Then the God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. If they reach out and take fruit from the tree of life and eat it, what if they reach out and take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? They will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden and sent Adam to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And after sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The tragedy of the fall, notwithstanding sin and all of its effects and all the pain and suffering that's come into the world and the separation of sinful mankind from a relationship with a glorious and holy God is now then rather fighting for us, the flaming sword of God would be pitted against us. Rather than access to an eternal life, we're destined for judgment for sin and death because the justice of a holy God And the righteousness of a holy God requires judgment against sin. Holiness cannot dwell in the presence of darkness. The kingdom of heaven began to stand against the kingdom of the enemy and whom mankind have now become its slaves. But if you're not careful, looking at this story, you're going to miss something so important. See, many people view God only from this standpoint. A righteous and holy God angry with sinners, pitted for judgment, ready to smite and destroy. He's a God you can't approach, they believe, because of our unworthiness. And many, for their entire lives, try to prove themselves worthy of his love through acts of good works, through becoming religious, so much so that they try to kill themselves to become good enough to earn his love and acceptance, but to no avail, because sinners cannot ever become good enough on their own. But look what happens just before God removes us from his kingdom, from the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3.21, it says, The Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. God took the lives of animals to make skin, to make clothing. You need to catch this. This glorious, most holy, righteous and magnificent God, the King of all creation, though betrayed in ultimate rejection by his children, his bride, out of love and compassion, makes a covering for their nakedness. 
It's not the covering that was supposed to be. We were supposed to be covered in his glory. But it would be a covering that would cover their shame for a time. He makes a covering for the skins of animals, which means their blood had to be shed to cover their shame. And many liken this to what Jesus would do for us on the cross. It would be the blood of Jesus shed to cover our nakedness. And I think there is a parallel there. But I feel this is more revealing of the Old Testament law. If you know about the Old Testament, God gave Israel all these commandments that they would have to do, all these sacrifices they would have to make time and time again. The moment they sinned, they'd have to go make another sacrifice. The moment they stepped out of God's will, they'd have to go make another sacrifice. Just like you and I, as our clothes wear out and we have to go to the store and buy new clothes, eventually that covering would not have lasted. They would have had to make new clothes. Other animals would have had to die to cover their nakedness. I believe this is a picture of the law coming into being because from this point on, we see man tries to earn God's favor through animal sacrifice, even before he gave the law to Moses. And through these sacrifices, through covering our shame with animal skin, it's a continual reminder of the shame and the price of sin. And that's exactly what Paul tells us the law was intended to do. It was intended to teach us about the depth of our sin and our desperate need for a Savior. The King of Kings makes clothes for them, covers their sin. And then he says, in Genesis 3.22, says, And then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take fruit from the tree of life and eat it. Then they will live forever. Remember, the tree of life brings with it eternal life. It was created to sustain humanity for all eternity. What is God saying? He's saying, if I don't banish them from my kingdom, then they might eternally damn themselves to an existence where I can never be reunited with them ever again. If I let them taste of the tree of life in this existence, there will be no hope for salvation and redemption. Even in God's righteous judgment, he had ultimate compassion. He could not leave the ones he loved like this. He could not bear an eternity of watching pain and suffering that Satan would unleash unto his beloved. He had to ensure that one day he could redeem those he loved from the enemy camp and bring them back again into the kingdom of the living God. And a, one day, a better sacrifice would be offered. A sacrifice that would not need to be repeated over and over again. There'd be a sacrifice pure enough to wash away sin altogether once and for all and restore the eternal relationship that the lover had with his beloved once and for all. In Genesis 3, 14 through 15, as God is passing judgment on the serpent, the devil, he says this, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God strips the devil from his place of honor in heaven. He condemns him to dwell upon the earth. He promises war and ultimate victory for the seed of the woman that will ultimately overthrow Satan once and for all. And many believe this is what is called the Proto-Evangelion, the very first gospel where Jesus is being prophesied of a virgin birth and the coming of the Messiah. And that's a very likely and very common perception but this reference references a woman who has offspring. And the nation of Israel is also called in the Old Testament the bride of God, the people of God. And the offspring of Israel are those that arise because of Israel. And because Jesus came unto his people and his people perceived him not, they rejected him, he now has opened the door of salvation to another people, the Gentiles of the world. And now people from all over the world, every nation, tribe, and tongue are coming into the faith because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, uniting now both Jews and Gentiles into one body, the church, the ultimate bride of Christ. The church or the offspring of the woman who through Jesus 
ultimately destroy the enemy kingdom. In Revelation 12, 10 through 12, just before Jesus returns to reign and rule, it says this, Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth, the one who accuses them before God day and night. And they have what? Defeated him. Somebody say defeated him. And they have defeated him. There's a time coming when the accuser is going to be cast down. He's going to be destroyed. And they will have defeated him. How? By the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. They did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in heaven rejoice. But terror come on the earth and the sea. For the devil has come to you in great anger, knowing he has little time. Who defeats the enemy in ultimate victory because of what Christ has done on the cross. It is the bride of Christ. It is the church of Jesus Christ. The ones who overthrow the devil once and for all are you and I through our testimony of who he is and what he's done. It is the beloved of God who through the power of Jesus' name crush the head of the devil, destroying his kingdom and handing it over to Messiah once and for all. Jesus returns with us and casts the enemy into the lake of fire where he will dwell for all eternity with no chance of parole. And we will finally be restored to the glory that we once lost. This glorious, most holy God, incomparable, undefinable, is not just righteous and just, but he's also overflowing in compassion and mercy. He fights through love and sacrifice to woo us back to himself, to restore us to the place where we fell as if it never happened again or before. And how could we not, thinking about everything we've done and everything he's done for us, how could we not bow before this king of glory? How could we not repent of our sin and cry out for mercy? How could we not stand and worship with our hands raised, proclaiming hallelujah, praise the Lord Almighty? How could we not passionately pursue with all the zeal we can muster to touch his heart? Beloved, we may have lost our place in his kingdom for a time, but through Jesus we have now been restored. And we're being renewed every day as we draw close to him. And the closer we get to him every day, the more of his glory we get to see and experience. And the amazing thing is, is that when you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you know your sins are forgiven rather than fearing for your life when you stand before him. Rather than fearing of what will be exposed when his glorious gaze shines upon you, you'll be filled with love and run into his everlasting arms. The Bible says, perfect love casts out all fear. And in his love, there's no fear of judgment. The glory of God reveals the love of God to the people of God through the love that he has for us. And it's my prayer, church, that we continue to pursue his heart, that his love would so fill our lives, that we would come boldly before our greatest king, and worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. One, because he's worthy. Two, because we need him. And three, because we can't comprehend what he's going to do when his kingdom finally comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are glorious. You are holy. You are righteous. You're indescribable. You are, you are uncomparable. And when you said that the Lord is one and there are no other gods before you or beside you, God, we agree with that statement. There is none like you. You are what our hearts long for. You are the desperate cry of our souls. God, we need you. God, without you, we are hopeless. And we're so thankful, Lord that you did not stand against us in judgment only, but that you gave us compassion and mercy. And by your grace, we can be saved.
we can receive the gift of Jesus in our lives and be restored into this relationship, God, and inch ever so closer to who we were created to be, to where we find our identity in you, our hope in you, our love in you. And I just pray for those that are here today, God, as we have come, God, that you'd renew a fresh revelation of Jesus in our lives. And maybe there's someone here today, God, that is well aware of the sin in their lives. They feel that exposing gaze of the light of heaven upon them when they think about their own life and their own soul. They know how well they don't measure up. And there's a fear in their lives that if they were to pass from into death, even now as we were to leave this place, God, if they stood before you, that they would not be accepted, but they would be rejected. Like the dark, they'd be cast out. Holy Spirit, I just pray, God, that you would speak comforting words, Lord, and that you would draw them in just a moment. Before we receive the Lord's Supper, and we have a time of prayer, God that they would repent of their sins and they would turn to you and receive you as their Lord and Savior. And that the power of your unfailing love would begin to renew in them and create in them a new heart, a new life, and open their eyes to what it is to be a child of God. As the music begins to play, I just invite you to seek the Lord. If there are things in your life that you know are in the way of your relationship with Him, that you just confess those things to God. He sees them anyways. He knows that they're there. But the focus isn't on your sin. The focus is on His love for you. And He wants you to encounter His love. Heavenly Father, I pray in this place, Lord Jesus, that your love would so shine, that your forgiveness, God, would overflow, and that you begin restoring even mindsets and ideas of who you are. You're not angry with us. You're angry at sin, but your love is pointed to us, and you invite us to experience that love. And every time we call on your name, we meet a God who is ready to embrace, to love, to kiss our cheek, to rejoice over us. God, that you would renew our thoughts of you. You'd renew our perceptions of you. You'd increase in us this fear of the Lord, but God, not one that would make us run from you, but would make us run to you, knowing that in you is our safety, in you is our peace, in you is everything that we need. Thank you, Lord.